Welcome to Covenant Baptist Church. What a joy it is to be here with you this morning. Thank you to our worship team for leading us in those wonderful songs this morning. What great songs to prepare us for this. And that's my question this morning. Are you ready to meet with God? That's the question that was before the Israelites in this story. They were going to meet with God. That's a big deal, right? You know, we come here every week and and sometimes multiple times a week and, and praise God that we do. Praise God we have the opportunity to do that. But I think sometimes we take it for granted. We don't come prepared to meet with the God of the universe. Do you realize that's what we're doing every single week? Now, that doesn't mean you have to come here, right? God is not in a place built with hands, built with bricks, built with wood. He does not exist in a temple. He exists in the hearts of his people. So wherever you are, you are with God. Now, the Israelites were coming to a place to meet with him, and we're going to look at that story in just a little bit, but this just, just hit me this morning as, as we were singing that song, especially, did you feel the mountains tremble? And that's especially significant today for this story that we are looking at in this series, Fish Stories and Flannel Boards. And if you got the feeling, if you're new with us or you've never um, been here for one of the sermons out of this series... If you kind of got a Sunday school vibe with the video and with the, um, the, the flannel board. Here, let me go grab that for you. As you came in this morning, perhaps you saw it. I'm sorry for those watching on Facebook right now. I'm out of the camera view, although it is probably more pleasurable to you to have my face not on the screen. Hopefully you can see that. If you got a Sunday school vibe, that's on purpose. We are looking through the stories of the Bible, this story, the story of God redeeming his people. And as the Israelites were going to come and meet with God, they had to get ready. This was a big deal. They were meeting with the God of the universe. And were they ready? Why? Because they were about to come into the presence of of God himself. Now, have any of you heard of the term, and I'm sure that you have, the term shock and awe? Our military people especially are probably familiar with that term. According to, the Oxford, or according to OxfordReference.com, this is a term for a military strategy based on achieving rapid dominance over an adversary by the initial imposition of overwhelming force and firepower. This concept, the concept of shock and awe, was formulated by the American strategic analyst Harlan K. Ullman and James P. Wade in a Pentagon, a Pentagon briefing dated in 1996, and of course came to wider prominence during Operation Iraqi Freedom, which started on March 20th, 2003. On that day, the U.S. and its allies launched a massive aerial assault against Iraq, bombing the capital city of Baghdad, as well as targets in Mosul and Kirkuk. It was part of President Bush's war on terror following the September 11th attacks on American soil. And I I remember watching footage on that 
March 20th, 2003, on that day, I remember watching news footage, video footage of the bombings in Baghdad. And it was both spectacular and terrifying. If I didn't know better, it, it, it would have, I, I would have thought it was one of the best 4th of July shows I ever saw. Of course, it wasn't the 4th of July. And, and these weren't just fireworks. These were bombs exploding, taking the lives of people. In a briefing in Qatar in March 2003, the American general Tommy Frank said, this will be a campaign unlike any other in history. A campaign characterized by shock, by surprise, by flexibility, but the employment of precise munitions on a scale never before seen and by the application of overwhelming force. And and at that time, CNN correspondent Wolf Blitzer He reported that in his 30 years of experience, he had never seen anything on the scale of the bombing that occurred that day. That campaign was intended to instill shock and awe among Iraq's leaders to get their attention and to instill fear. And it didn't miss its mark. It did just that. Well, as shocking and as awe-filled as that day was in our text today, in Exodus chapter 19... We find an event in history that was more shocking and even more awe-filled. We find very quickly that this Pentagon briefing in 1996 was not the invention of the idea of the shock and awe strategy. America did not invent the shock and awe strategy. No, God did. And we see it happening in our text Today, Exodus chapter 19, if you would turn there, we're going to start with verses 1 through 6 and then we'll move through this text. Of course, we're covering the spans of Exodus 19 through 40, chapters 19 through 40. Obviously, we're not going to read all of that today. That would take longer than the time that we have here. But let's start with verses 1 through 6 in Exodus 19. And if you can and are willing, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? As this is indeed God's word. And God's word says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, would you now speak to us by your Spirit through your word. Lord, put me aside and would you communicate to the hearts 
of your people here today, O Lord. Communicate your love, your mercy, your holiness, all of your character so that we would see you and in seeing you and knowing you, Lord, we would have life. Would you do that today by your great mercy? In Jesus' name, amen. From this story today, and it is a story of commandments, of covenants, and of course, of a pesky calf. We learn a lot about God. As God enters into relationship, into covenant with the Israelites, we learn so much about Him from this story. And so let me just point out three of those things that we learn about God from this story. Now, I talked about this display of shock and awe, and we are going to read that in just a few moments, where God displays shock and awe to get His people's attention and to instill fear in them, because we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It also says knowledge. Those two things, two different verses. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. So our relationship with God Our knowledge of God starts with fear. Now, praise the Lord, it doesn't end there, does it? But he had to get the Israelites' attention. And he already starts this in what we just read. You'll remember what he said about the Egyptians. I'm the God who brought you out of of, of Egypt. Let me read that for you. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Do you remember what he did to the Egyptians? We looked at this last week. The ten plagues, right? That was shock and awe. That was scary. He's reminding them immediately, listen, you know what I am capable of. So listen carefully. The first thing we learn about God is this. God is fierce. Now, this isn't Tyra Banks, America's top model, y'all. Fierce. Not that type of fierce. Uh, Maybe God is a little bit like that. But God is not to be messed with. He is not to be trifled with. He is to be taken seriously. He is meeting with the people of Israel at the mountain here in the wilderness of Sinai because he's going to enter into covenant with them. This idea of covenant is really important in the Bible. We have multiple covenants. It goes back to the Edemic covenant, right? To The covenant that God made with Adam to be fruitful and to multiply. Of course, they sin. They fall. And then God tells Eve that her seed will crush the head of the serpent of the great enemy. There's a covenant there. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We've looked at that where God told Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. Numerous, as numerous as that, that that he would bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's descendants and specifically through his descendant, singular, Jesus Christ. And now we come to the, to the Mosaic covenant. And this is the covenant that God makes with Israel. The covenant through which he says, you will be my people. I will be your God. 
And through you I will bless the nations of the world. It's a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, the Mosaic covenant is the fulfillment or the beginning fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So let's look at this meeting and how I know that God is fierce, y'all. Chapter 19, verses 7 through 25. And this is a lengthy passage, but I think it warrants reading this morning. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And, re- and Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, I, and, and, and t- today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. So not only the person that comes into the presence of the mountain, and really this isn't the presence of the mountain, right? God is descending on the mountain, so coming to the mountain is coming into the presence of God himself. And and to approach a holy God, an unholy person or thing, to come into the presence, to approach a holy God means certain death. And not just the person who comes into contact, but if anyone else touches that person, they will die as well, or the animal, or whatever. When the trumpet sounds, this is verse 13, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. This is men and women having relationships, husbands and wives. That's what he means there. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord God Moses to the, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And lest the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people 
and told them. Do you hear and see and feel the fierceness of God in this text? The the danger of God. The overwhelming nature of God's fierceness as He comes down in lightning and thunder and fire and trembles the mountain. It was one thing to make the people tremble. It's quite another thing to make a mountain tremble. It wasn't an earthquake. It it wasn't a volcanic eruption. It was the presence of a fierce and holy God. And even the mountain shook at His presence. Again, my friends, He is not to be dealt with haphazardly. To deal with a holy, infinite God is a very dangerous thing. Moses had to put a boundary around the mountain lest anyone would get close and die. For it is impossible for sinful people to approach a holy God. Now, of course, there were exceptions at rare times. Moses is allowed to come up. Aaron is allowed to come up. Once a year, the priests were allowed into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, one priest at one time, but in order to come into God's presence, they had to be properly cleansed through the ritual washings, a very lengthy and complicated process that God is going to give Moses through the giving of the law. And then listen to the people's response in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin, shock and awe. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Here's what God wants his people to get. And here's what God wants us to get today. He is for real. He's for keeps. He's not the character in a fictional story. He's not a punchline or a cute caricature. He's not a philosophical idea nor merely a cosmic energy. He is the God of heaven and earth who causes mountains to tremble and the heavens to rumble. He is intelligent and personal. He is infinite and just. And he is not known by different names in different religions. He is Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and there is none like him. He is fierce. He is Lord of all, and he is not to be trifled with. And the beginning of wisdom, my friends, is to fear this God. So I ask again, did we come ready today? I don't know if I was ready to meet that God. But I want to be. Every week, every day, I want to be ready to meet such a God. Why is he so scary? Why is he such a big deal? Well, the second thing that we learn about God is this, that God is holy. Holy, holy, 
holy. In fact, I should have put that word three times up here on my PowerPoint. God is holy, holy, holy. Three times in the Hebraic language, that's the holiest, right? We've learned this before that in Hebrew, they don't have holy, holier, holiest. They don't have degrees like we do. So what they do is they repeat words to show the emphasis. So one can be holy, that's holy. One can be holy, holy, that's holier. Or one can be holy, 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 that's holiest. And God is holy, holy, holy. God is holy. And we come to the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Now, there's a lot of law here given. Exodus 19 through 40, God is giving Moses the law, the entirety of it for the people. Or a lot of it, at least. And and I would encourage you, if you haven't already this week, to look through those. Because it is complex and it is overwhelming. Of course, we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. We have four vertical commandments, as I call them. the, The vertical relationship with God. And then we have... Five, or, or sorry, six horizontal commandments. The, the, the human relationships, relationships with one another. So really it can be come down to, as Jesus says, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, to love others as yourself. Loving God and loving people. This is the entirety of the law. But we humans are a little dense, Amen. Amen. And we need a lot of help. We need specifics. And so God gives specifics. I'm going to run through the ten here very quickly with you. Because in these ten, everything else is encapsulated. All the rest of the law is is in these ten somehow. So that's why God gives them the ten first. So God gives Moses the ten. He goes down. He tells the people. And then he goes back up to get the the specifics, the, the more detail. So you have these four vertical commandments. The first one in verse 3, no other God. And and you could even say this would be adultery against God. To cheat on God with another God. Now it's interesting because number two in verse 4 is no idols. Now a lot of us would think that's the same thing, an idol and another God. But, but he's saying, do not build for yourselves a, a crafted image, a graven image, something that you build and make that you bow down to. But listen, an idol doesn't have to be something that's before you and seen, right? An idol doesn't have to be a, some kind of created image or structure. An idol can be a relationship. An idol can be, your, or, or another God can be a relationship. Another God can be yourself. Another God can be a bank account. Another God can be a job. And a, another God can be any number number of things that aren't necessarily visible and tangible that we put in significance and importance before God. Anything that gets more of us than God does is another God. And God says that's wrong. Obviously, right? Because He deserves our best and our first and our all. No other God. Verse 4, no idols. Verse 7, 
Do not take the name of God in vain. Now, if you're like me, you grew up with your mom or dad or whoever saying, don't take the name of God in vain. That means don't say G-O-D outside of the context of talking about or talking to God, right? And, and I think that's perfectly good and right. That name should be holy. That name should be set apart. We, we shouldn't use that name uh, mundanely or, or to reference anything else or especially in a curse, right? But this is not, this is not just about uh, OMG, okay? That, that's not really what it's about. Blasting off a, a, a couple of words, some words, OMG, That's not what God is really talking about here. This is about hypocrisy. This is about claiming and and entitling yourself with the name of God. Going around saying, I'm a follower, (coughs) excuse me, of Jesus. I'm a follower of Yahweh and then living a totally different life. This is what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. To claim it, but not live it. It's hypocrisy and it is sin. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, which just means to give God the honor that is due Him. This is about worship and trust, right? Because we no longer keep the Sabbath on the Saturday. And, and this comes from New Testament practice, right? New Testament Christians worshiped on the first day, the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so it's okay that we don't keep Saturdays holy anymore. And listen, this is about giving God what He deserves, Giving, giving God the best and first and most. Worshiping Him. Trusting Him. Making worship a priority. Those are the first four, and those are about our vertical relationship with God. Now, the second, even though I call them horizontal commandments, horizontal, uh, have to do with horizontal relationships, remember what Jesus says, if we don't love our brother, we don't love Him. If we don't love others, we can't say we love God. And so these horizontal commandments are as much about loving God as they are about loving people. The first one, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. I say it's first, it's technically the fifth of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Verse 13, do not murder. Verse 14, do not commit adultery. Verse 15, do not steal. Verse 16, do not lie. Specifically, do not lie in an attempt to take advantage of or hurt other people people, right? This is what this is about. This is about taking advantage of people, hurting people. And then verse 17, do not covet jealousy. And those are the 10. And within those 10, all the commands are held. Everything else that God is going to give to Moses as the law will fit under these, right? God is holy. And we see that in these laws because that's not it. We have 10. The 10 are manageable. The 10 are impossible to live out perfectly all the time. But at least we we can put 10 into a category. We can say, okay, I've memorized the 10. And, And then God says, okay, but now here are the details. Here are the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And all of a sudden, that that list of 10, it gets way bigger, and we go, oh my. 
How in the world am I going to keep all of those? How in the world am I going to live all of that? And, and all those rules and laws that God gives to Moses have to do with every single part of their life. How they eat, how they move, where they go, how they work, how they sew their clothes. Like the laws impact every ounce of their life. And, and we say, God, why are you so particular? And, and I think he would respond with, because I am holy. But, but here's what I want you to know. Here's what I think God wants us to know. I must be involved in every part of your life. There is nothing that is outside of my control. Nothing that is outside of my domain. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. What two more mundane things could, have, could Paul have picked out and, and referenced than eating and drinking? Something we all do most likely on a daily basis. Eating and drinking, nothing more mundane than that in our everyday life. And Paul says, even in that, we must honor God. So no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink or anything else, glorify God in it. And that's the point here. There is nothing in our life that should be outside of God's control and domain. Nothing in our life that we can say, this is mine, that's yours. No, God says it's all mine. And I want you to love me in all of it. The laws were so numerous and so intricately involved with their everyday lives because God wanted them to know that he wanted to be involved with their everyday lives and because he wanted them to know that it was impossible for them to live the law perfectly. So here's the other reason why it's so complex. Because God says, I want you to know you can't do it. Did God set them up for failure? Kind of. At the beginning. He kind of did. Now, he provided the sacrificial system, right, so that they could atone for all those mistakes. But God wanted them to know, you can't do this. My holiness is unattainable. And you will fail. You can't do it all. It was so exhaustive, so complex, so overwhelming that not a single one of them could live up to it in every way. And so it forced them to trust him, to look to him for grace, and to long for one who would fulfill the law and provide atonement for them. In the immediate, it was the lamb, the goat, the bird, the, the sacrifices of the animals. In the long term, it was the Messiah that they longed for and waited for. And this law, it is a stumbling block. Now, that's a contradiction of terms because I'm going to tell you today because Jesus said it, the law is good. It was given by God and everything that God gives is good. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above uh, with, no there, with whom there is no shifting or changing of shadow. The Father of lights, right? Lights, not lies. Lights. Every gift he gives is good and so the law is good and yet the law became a stumbling block. How? Well, the law, uh, people either are a slave to it or a hater of it, right? There are those out there who live their lives trying to be good enough. This, this defines pretty much the entire Jewish religion, right? They're trying to live well enough to earn God's favor. And, and God's whole point is you can't do that. It's impossible, 
So there are those who are a slave to it, and it's become a stumbling block to them because they're not looking to the one who did fulfill the law, Jesus Christ. They're still trying to do it on their own, or they flat out hate it. I'm done. I'm sick of it. I'm not doing this. God, I'm out of here. I'm done with you. The well-known humanist, Dr. John Haynes Holmes, he said the book of Leviticus, talking about the law, is not fit to be in the Bible. He hated it. He despised it. And those who do not want to see the holiness of God, those who do not want to know that they can ever attain to that, they hate the law. Because it reveals what he requires, what the standard is. And if we're all honest, we all say, there's no way I can do that. Now, the people, they couldn't do it for a few hours, right? Moses comes down, gives them the Ten Commandments. He goes back up the mountain to get the rest, to get the details, the specifics. The fine print, if you will. And while he's gone, the people get so impatient that they decide to to break the first two commandments, right? My word. My word, that's right. They have another God and they create a graven image. Now, I like like Aaron's story. I, I don't know, Moses. We threw some gold in a fire and out popped a calf. Woo! Shazam! I don't know how it happened, Moses. For one, why would you throw gold in a fire? Like, that's just something that Aaron did on a daily basis. As I often do, I was throwing gold in a fire and out popped this calf. Of course, that's not what happened. The people wanted something to serve. They wanted something to look at because that's what the world wants, right? We want something tangible. We want something now, here. We don't, we don't want to wait. Uh, we don't want to look to an, a God who isn't seen. We, we want something that we can feel and touch and taste. And so we demand our idols. We de- demand uh, our, our proofs and our evidences. We're unwilling to trust and wait on the Lord. This catastrophic calf in Exodus chapter 32. Of course, because of their sinfulness, as it said in the video before, because God takes sin very seriously, the first thing that happens is it's melted down and the gold is mixed with water and they have to drink this gold water, which I can only imagine wasn't good to drink, right? I would imagine that would sit pretty heavy on their stomachs. Gold is heavy, right? When gold cools, it rehardens. Yikes. But then, worse than that, and the video didn't talk about this, turn to Exodus chapter 32. We see the holiness of God here. This is serious business. Exodus chapter 32, verses 19 and 20. And as soon as he, that's Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And now we skip to verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, this goes back to last week, right? We talked about the verse a few weeks ago where, no, uh, yeah, Maybe it was last week where we talked about the verse that says that um, without vision, the people what? 
perish. And what do we say vision was? It was prophetic vision. It was the word of God. That without the word of God, people go crazy. They are unrestrained. Well, this is exactly what's happening. Moses goes up to get the word of God, and instead of waiting for it, the people go crazy. When Moses, when Moses saw that people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. It means they died. Execution, death, because the wages of sin is what? Did you think God was joking around when he said that? Do you think he was just being metaphorical? Do you think he was just trying to make a point that he was bluffing? No, God is serious when it comes to sin. And my friends, sin brings death, whether it happened immediately or happened sometime in the future. That's what sin does. Because Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. God is holy. But here's the good news. He is not just fierce. He is not just holy, 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 although he absolutely is. Here's the third thing we learn. God is merciful. Do you believe that today? Now, I've gotten a little worked up today. I've really purposely so nailed down the fact that God is holy and he takes sin serious and sin brings consequences, serious consequences. I've done that on purpose just so you can understand and appreciate the mercy of God when it comes into your life. And so God, knowing that his people would never be able to live up to the law, to be able to fulfill all that he asked them to do, that they would fail and that they would fail miserably. In fact, they did it just in the first few minutes, right? After the Ten Commandments come, what do they immediately do? They immediately fail. And they don't just break some of the law. They break the first two. As if they were just like, well, let's tick off the list here. There's one. There's two. Eight more to go. Let's see if we can get it done before the end of the day. It's like they were meaning to. Now, we don't know how many Israelites there were, but estimates were around a million when they came out of Egypt. Math whizzes, I should have figured this out. What percentage of one million is 3,000? It's a small percentage, right? It's a very, very small percentage. Now, 3,000 people is a lot of people. That's about the number that died in the World Trade Center bombings. That's a lot of people. And yet it is a small percentage of the total population of the Israelites at this time. So there's mercy seen in that not all of them died, right? Because God said, I'm done with them. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses pleaded for the lives of the Israelites. And God showed him and them favor through him. So we immediately see the mercy and forgiveness of God. And what does God do? Well, in the laws that he's giving to Moses, he gives them the sacrificial system. He saw on that last slide, the tabernacle, and here you see the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat of God. In fact, it's called the mercy seat of God. 
from whence grace came. The presence of God. And, and when they would mess up, and they did it often, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and their sins would be atoned for. That's mercy, right? They all deserve to die. Every single one of them. And yet God gave them mercy immediately. And then he gave them this system, this sacrificial system, through which they could receive his mercy over and over and over and over. We see God's grace all over the place. And then we see it not just in the old covenant, but we see it infinitely and wonderfully more in the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who died, who bled, and his, his blood forgives sin forever, perfectly, permanently. This is the mercy of our great God. This God who is fierce. This God who is holy, who has the right to wipe us out right now. No questions asked, right? As I heard it once said, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. We're done for. And he has every right to do that, justly and rightly. And yet, instead of killing us, he killed his son. He tortured and abused and crushed his own son for you. That's the mercy of our God. Here's the cool thing. I've shared this with you before, but it's been several years. On the day the law was given, how many people died? How many? Do we just read about how many? 3,000, right? Exodus 32, 25 through 28, the Levites go out, they take their swords, and they execute about 3,000 people that day. The day the law was given. Do you remember what happened on the day the Spirit was given? Because the law brings death, the Spirit brings life, right? Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 40. Now when they heard this, Peter has just preached his sermon. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come down and Peter preaches this amazing sermon. In Acts chapter 2. Now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, listen to this. So those who received his word were baptized. Now how many died on the day the law was given? 3,000, right? So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
My friends, this is not accidental. This is not just one of those numbers given uh, offhandedly. There's a point here, and this is it. The law brings death. The Spirit brings life because the law condemns us. The law brings us to a knowledge of our sin, makes us aware that we are dead in our transgressions and and dead in our sin, and that there's no hope for us outside of a Redeemer. The, The law reminds us that we can't do this. The law reminds us how holy He is and how guilty we are. The law brings us to our knees and says without Jesus, there is no hope. But we have a merciful God. And he didn't leave us in that predicament, right? He didn't leave us in that place of shame and sin and guilt. No, he is merciful. He is infinitely merciful and so he sent a savior jesus christ god in flesh who lived a perfect life he fulfilled the law remember what jesus said i didn't come to do away with the law i came to fulfill it and that's exactly what he did all those laws that god gave to moses on sinai jesus lived perfectly he was the only one who could do it And because he did that, he could stand as our replacement, as our substitute. And he died for us. He took the payment that we deserved and lived the life that we could not. On the day the law was given, 3,000 died. On the day the Spirit was given, 3,000 lived. And that invitation to life stands today, my friends. It is for you. It is for all who would come to Christ in faith. A few years ago in 2016, a comedy sitcom started called The Good Place. And it was a sitcom about the afterlife. And at the beginning of the show, in fact, the very first episode, you have this character waking up And this individual says, come on in. She comes into this office. She sits down. And he says, you are in the good place. And so she starts to ask questions. There's a good place. There's a bad place. And she says, so who got it right? Did the Christians get it right? Did the Hindus get it right? Did the Buddhists get it right? And and." Listen, it's terrible theology, okay? I'm not saying you should learn your theology from the good place. It's terrible theology. But what he says is, really, none of them got it right. Nobody got it right. Except for one person. Doug Forsett. Back in the 60s, Doug had an epiphany, and he guessed like 99% of what the afterlife would be like. It was based on a point system, where if you get... Enough good points, you get to the good place. If you don't get enough good points, you're in the bad place. Now, in a later episode, we get a picture into Doug Forsett's life. And and Doug Forsett has become a slave to doing good. He's given up all hope for having any joy in this life because he's working so hard to get into the good place in the next life. And and when they show Doug Forsett, Doug Forsett is not a happy person. Doug Forsett is not a joyful person. Doug Forsett is a slave to eternity, trying to do enough, trying to earn it, trying to be good enough. He gets taken advantage of. 
He doesn't get to eat what he wants. He doesn't get to go where he wants. He has to walk everywhere because he's trying not to leave a carbon footprint and help everything. He, at one point, he steps on a snail and he loses his mind because, oh no, what if that took away points? This is what the law brings. Now, I want to say two things about this application for us right now. The thing that Doug was doing well is he had an eternal vision. An eye for eternity. One of the characters says, Doug, chill out. Take it easy, man. You've done well your whole life. You've got a few points to give. Live a little. And Doug says, no. Because what if that next thing I do takes away just enough points to keep me out of the good place? But here's the thing. Doug was living for eternity. He was living for forever. Not just for the moment. And I think we can learn something from that, Christians. Because how often do we live for the now, right? Do we live for here? We lose sight of eternity. We lose sight of those around us who are lost and dying and going to hell, the bad place. And we aren't living for that. So in that way, we can learn a little from Doug Forsett. But Doug had no joy or confidence because he never knew if he had enough points. And we find that Doug lived a pretty miserable existence. And my friends, in Christ, we get confidence. We get joy. We don't have to live wondering if we have enough, if we've done enough good, if, if, if maybe this one thing, if stepping on a snail is going to blow eternity for us. No, my friends, in Christ we can be sure, confident, and joyful. And you are invited to that confidence today. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. You don't have to live good enough. You just have to trust Him. That's it. What a joy that is when we know that Christ is our Redeemer. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your mercy. God, you are holy. And I pray this week, Lord, as we wake up each day, you would help us to say, God, am I ready to meet with you today? Am I ready? Ready to see your face because... In, in, in the story where Moses is on the mountain, he asks God, let me see your glory. Let me see your face, God. And, and God says, no, anyone who sees my face will die. And so I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as I go by, I'm going to give you a glimpse of the back of my glory. Just a snippet of it. But, oh God, when you sent your son, all of a sudden, we saw your glory. Glory is of the only begotten. All of a sudden, we could look you in the face God, because of your mercy, because of your son, because of Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. And I ask, oh God, that if there's anyone in here today who doesn't have that joy and confidence in Christ, that they would come to you today, that as soon as we're done here, they would run forward, grab me and say, help me to know him. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.